this new covenant, it's going to be terrific, but only because God is effectively removing the capacity to disobey. Welcome back to Chapter, Verse, and Season, a lectionary podcast from Yale Bible Study. Join us each week as two Yale Divinity School professors look at an upcoming text from the Revised Common Lectionary. This episode, we have Joel Baden, professor of Hebrew Bible and director of the Center for Continuing Education, and Abdul Rahman Malik, associate research scholar and lecturer in Islamic studies. They're discussing Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 27 through 34, which is appointed for track one of the 19th Sunday after Pentecost, proper 24, in year C. Here's the text. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 27 through 34. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of humans and the seed of animals. And just as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring evil, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, says the Lord. In those days they shall no longer say, The parents have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But all shall die for their own sins. The teeth of the one who eats sour grapes shall be set on edge. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors, when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to one another, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. The idea of a new covenant is contingent on the idea of an old covenant. And what Jeremiah is really playing with here is the idea that from the days of you know Egypt or Mount Sinai on, Israel has been living under it's it's early it's earlier covenant maybe not its first there's plenty of covenants in israel's history but the main one for the nation has been this covenant that's been based on on laws and that israel in jeremiah's view and not just his israel has been essentially violating kind of nonstop for its entire history and what has that meant for jeremiah that's meant that under the old covenant life was really little else than sin punishment maybe a little relenting, more sin, more punishing. And it's a cycle that's just gotten, gotten heavier and heavier. And in Jeremiah's looking up, of course, Jeremiah living at the time of essentially the conquest of Judah and Jerusalem is looking at this and saying that we've, we've reached the, right, the pinnacle. Right? It's gotten as bad as it's going to get. And essentially, Jeremiah is voicing God as saying, enough already. This, what we got here isn't working. I gave you laws. I gave you the chance to obey them. You haven't been doing it. 
I've, all I've been doing is punishing you the whole time. The language at the beginning of the passage about I have been plucking up and breaking down and overthrowing and destroying and bringing evil. That's that's been the, that's been all I've been able to do. I'm a parent. You're a parent. Sometimes your kid gets into that cycle of like you punish them, and when you punish them, they say something even worse back to you, and you're like, oh, now I have to punish you more. Right? And it keeps going, and eventually, this is this is God's moment as a parent, being like, you know what? Forget it. I'm, I'm tearing up the whole original deal. And that sounds great, except that, at least, at least as I read it, and this may simply have to do with how I read Jeremiah generally, but as I read it, the thing that's being offered in replacement of the old covenant, that is this new covenant, is pitched as, it's going to be terrific, everything's going to be much better now, but only because God is effectively removing from the people the capacity to disobey, which is also kind of removing from them the capacity to obey. It's, it's, it's enforced language. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I don't read that as a nice loving act. I read that as carving the law into flesh, right? It's branding. There is an underlying sense of violence throughout these these verses. I mean, we begin at the beginning in the translation I'm reading, just as I watched over them to uproot and tear down, to overthrow, destroy, bring disaster. I'll now watch them build and plant. I, I want to say that part of that uprooting, tearing down, overthrowing, and destroying is because God asked them to do that. God asked them to take over land. God asked them to establish themselves in this holiest of lands, to, to, to wipe away those who, who came before. In a way, when God punishes, and I guess we're speaking with, with our self-care, post-traumatic hats on now, when people face those kinds of trauma, people do trauma, you know, hurt people, hurt people. And so I think you're very right in saying that this, this sort of cycle of punishment, a relenting, repentance, asking, disobedience, and punishment, encoded in that, it's a kind of a modeling of a kind of a violence. I'll do you one better. Hurt people, hurt people, which I, I love that you brought in here. Uh, what if the hurt person here is God? God has, right, in the, in the violating of the covenant and the sinning against God, God has been hurt. And, you know, God, as, as the hurt party, is like, yeah, so I've been, and so I've been hurting you. And I will, in, I, the ending of the cycle involves, in my, in my reading at least, a different kind of, of of hurting. I mean, it's um, it's it's a sort of more metaphysical hurting. The the, the removal of essentially a removal of free will. The, oh, it's it's kind of a sp- a spiritual lobotomy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that a lot. Yeah. I, so I you know I think that there's multiple obviously multiple hurt parties here. But I I I don't know. I'm always interested in thinking about God as character. And in, in a sense, God in this passage is is characterizing himself when he uses the language of uh or when jeremiah at least uses the language of i made i made this covenant and they broke this covenant even though i was their husband i'm not the one who's who's sort of talking about god metaphorically as like the hurt party jeremiah already did that right the husband who has been cheated on right which is this broad biblical relatively common prophetic metaphor that i deeply detest yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm hearing that, and and of course, my Muslim sensibilities, uh-huh. <laughs> with its radical monotheism of God as 
as present with and separate from creation, creation contingent on God, and God uh, being, you know, Lesa Kamithlihi Shay, there is nothing unto God, uh, like God. You know, when you talk about a God being heard, I, I definitely, my my Muslim spiritual sensibilities go, woohoo, hold yeah. on, hold on here. That's not the way we talk about, talk about the divine. But I, I appreciate you pointing out that that's the way Jeremiah is, is speaking about the divine. And the husband-wife metaphor, which is, which is very disturbing in a lot of different ways, because again, there's a certain patriarchal violence that is not just encoded in, that's apparent in the, in, in, in the, in, in the, in the words here, really challenge my, my own sensibilities. That as, as I'm reading this, the notion of a, of a hurt God, God isn't diminished by our sin nor um, expanded by our obedience. You know, the Muslim sensibility around this always is that we do action to our own detriment and or uh, to our own loss or to our own edification and to our own blessing. And and so so this this kind of conversation with God as character is something that is yeah is generally foreign I would say is especially in the Quranic language I think we get the language of intimacy really in the in in the in the mystical and the spiritual and we do get it in, again in some of these sayings of the prophet which speak God's words and are not the Quran. I mean, famously, and the Sufis will go back to it all the time, right? Is that 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 God said that I was a hidden treasure, and I longed to be known, so I created creation, so I could be known. This this notion, which was picked up by Ibn Arabi and others, of God's constant self disclosure that we, as creation, in a way, are constantly disclosing uh, through our actions and our way in the world, God. And God's eternal, eternal, eternal majesty. I think that's where we get close into that kind of intimate, intimate, and almost mysterious relationship, right, between between Creator and creation. But yes, your your, your language to me feels at once compelling and foreign. Yeah, it's it's very. I think it's very hard for many of us who, from whatever tradition, essentially have taken on you know uh, what we might talk as a neoplatonic notion of of the deity as you know as as distant and 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 not just distant but entirely incommensurable and unaffectable and uh and totally other when the bible talks about you know voices god as saying you israel cheated on me and i was so angry and it's not in this passage, but in plenty of others like this, that I, you know, I stripped you and I, and I, you know, I paraded you in front of the nations and I embarrassed you and I shamed you so that you would come back. To, I mean, there's hurt there. Mm. There's absolutely hurt there that is that doesn't feel. And, and you know, we can talk about it as we can talk about it as, as metaphor and and play with it in, in lots of different ways. But this is. You know, I, I sort of have a hobby horse about the, the the marital metaphor in 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 the Bible because not only does it, as you said, have all these terrible patriarchal issues as an ancient text, but this is you know this is a, a divine a divine marriage uh, or at least description of one that is now encoded uh, or as you said, just sitting there apparent in the scriptural text. For people who turn to it and that say, you know, what should a marital relationship look like? How should I respond when, you know, the husband saying, how do I respond when my wife is is unfaithful? 
for a text, again, I want to come back to the hurt people, hurt people is so good because if that's what's going on in the biblical text, it gives warrant for the hurt person looking to the Bible to hurt people in 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 return. And I think that I think that this all of this marital imagery again, it's it's, it's actually quite light here. There's just one quick reference that you know, like. Uh, but you're saying it's it's heavier elsewhere. Oh, it's much heavier. I mean, it's 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 grotesque elsewhere. Hosea two, Ezekiel sixteen. These are chapters that are appalling. And the ramifications of them as participating in this metaphor are and have been appalling and continue to be down down to the present. So, I mean, to put it all together, I, you know, I think that we keep on circling back to for for a passage that reads as, you know, I, I'm going to do this great thing. I'm going to end all of the unhappiness and all of your punishment, and I'm going to bring about a new covenant. When you read it through the lens of the violence that I think you and I are both seeing here on multiple levels, that's less a promise than it is a threat. And I think it's, you know, I, I for a passage, again, that ends, I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin. Right? That's at, at, at once a lovely thing. Oh, terrific. And also, uh, I think, a, a vaguely terrifying thing. It reminds us that what has been happening is punishment and oppression for percep- for perceived sin and you know i don't know i can i can, ima- I can imagine i can imagine a, a contemporary situation of you know I, i'm not going to i'm not going to punish you anymore i'm just going to make it Im- impossible for you to ever disobey again put you in a cage i will tie your hands behind your back i mean there's all kind of, there's all kinds of violent ways in which that it can be manifest yeah the 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 the, the removal of agency you're right, is the underlying terrifying theme here. And and I and I do wonder out loud how contemporary theologians, particularly from the traditions who are engaging this as sacred text and active sacred text, we are in a lectionary podcast um after after all, how are people folks going to be reading this and 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 how do we handle and deal with some of these really thorny and difficult conceptualizations of relationships that you've you've like so precisely touched on i i wonder what kind of spiritual language and interpretive language or hermeneutic is is going to be applied in order to reformulate reposition reorient this can it be reorient Thanks for listening. And thank you, Professors Baden and Malik, for your insights on Jeremiah. You know, in addition to the pre-recorded Bible study stuff, Yale Bible Study also offers synchronous online classes, all free, plus other cool events. Find all that and more at YaleBibleStudy.org and follow us on Twitter at BibleYale. Chapter, Verse, and Season is a production of the Center for Continuing Education at Yale Divinity School. It's produced by creator and managing editor Joel Baden, production manager Kelly Morrissey, associate producer Aidan Stoddart, and I'm your host and executive producer, Helena Martin. Our theme music is by Calvin Linderman. We'll be back with another conversation from chapter, verse, and season.